You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning is the verses preceding our text, so we will read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 31, with our text being the verses 18 through 31. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into his fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, 
holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, most people that you would meet probably wouldn't say that being a pastor and a preacher is the worst job in the world. In fact, Forbes magazine ranked being a lumberjack as the worst job that you could have in 2012, right along with being a dairy farmer, an oil rig operator, or being in the military. My experience speaking to people not from the church in social contexts, wherever you come across these people, at sporting events or at the grocery store, and I tell them what I do for a living as a pastor and a preacher, they don't scoff or express their pity for me in this line of work. Usually they say, oh, that's great, or isn't that wonderful? And the odd person will just become uncomfortably silent. No one has ever told me that I'm a fool. But when you consider what a preacher does for their livelihood, what they spend their time and their energy doing, then you really start to wonder, does that person, does that non-Christian really think it's great that someone else spends their energy, their life, preaching the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it really wonderful in the eyes of the world that the church proclaims the universal sovereignty of a once-crucified first-century Jewish rabbi who claimed to be and called us to believe that he is God. And that salvation can only be gained. Yes, that life can only be had by believing in him and his work on our behalf. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder what it would be like not only to tell people that that is what you're doing now and you've been busy with for a few years, what it would be like to tell people that that's what you have spent your entire working career doing. What really must the world think of a man who has given not the best years, but all of his working years to proclaiming the foolishness of the cross? Foolishness. They say it's wonderful, but it, they think it's foolishness. That's what our pastor Vischer has been busy with for nearly 40 years and 25 years here in Langley. Is proclaiming foolishness and every week busying himself with foolishness. As far as fools go, though, He's not the only one. And as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in our text this morning, Paul acknowledges the foolishness of what he has given his life to proclaiming and assures the church that there is nothing more worthwhile. Though foolishness in the eyes of the world, there is nothing more worthwhile than proclaiming, than preaching the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. So why would you spend your life preaching and believing foolishness? Well, we'll understand why when we consider 
the wisdom of the world, what that is and where that gets us. Also, when we consider the weakness of our uh, of the saints, that is the weakness of ourselves. And finally, when we consider the wisdom of God, we see why there's nothing better than proclaiming this message and believing in it. So first, the wisdom of the world. And to understand what Paul is talking about here when he talks about wisdom, we need to understand the motivation that this letter brings, or the first motivation at least that Paul is dealing with in this letter. And that is that this church in Corinth is a divided house. There's all sorts of groups. What's happening here? Well, it seems that the Corinthian church was divided according to influential leaders in the church. Now, why would they do this? Why would they divide themselves and, and, and find allegiance with all these different leaders? Well, because that's what you do. That's what people do. Especially in Roman society and Greek society, it encouraged following charismatic leaders and schools of thought as you ordered your life. And so you had your Democrats and your Republicans, you had your skeptics, your academics, your Stoics, your Epicureans, your Peripatetics. You had your patrons and your clients. You had endless levels and divisions within society. And so, why not in the church? That's how you live. That's what you do. Peter, he's the rock of the church. I follow him. Apollos, he is the greatest preacher. He's the guy for me. Follow him. Please, I was baptized by him. Are you kidding me? Paul, the, agent, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, there's no one better to follow than Paul. And then, of course, someone would come with the trump card. Well, I follow Christ. The Corinthians were following the worldly pattern of dividing and fighting amongst each other. Of looking at themselves and their situation and discovering what about them or what about they, who they believe or what they believe or who they follow puts them above others, puts others down. They would look at themselves, what sets them apart from others, so that they could boast in themselves. But that is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be the way the world goes about its business. It's not the way the church of Jesus Christ goes about its business. The gospel of Jesus Christ unites. And unites under one Lord, one head, one teacher, as we prayed for Annalise this morning. It's he that we serve. Worldly wisdom divides. Well, what is this worldly wisdom that Paul is, is talking about? Well, it's not like Paul is, is attacking intellectual or intellectuals or attacking wisdom in itself. He's not saying there's something wrong with wisdom and that it's much better and much safer just to be ignorant. Don't learn things. That's going to be a problem. That's not what Paul is saying. That sometimes the way that this verse is applied, that's not what's going on here. There's no problem with education. There's no problem with an education in philosophy or history or science or whatever you seek to gain knowledge in. What Paul is criticizing isn't wisdom in general. How can he? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. No, Paul's criticizing worldly 
wisdom. He's criticizing a certain type of wisdom, but it's a certain type of wisdom that is ever prevalent in this world. What is worldly wisdom? Well, given what Paul says in the section, he seems to be criticizing a general trend. He's not singling out a certain strand of wisdom. There were all sorts of strands, as we mentioned, in that society. There were the Stoics and the Epicureans and all sorts of others. Paul seems to be lumping them all together and pointing out what's in common about all of them. And what's in common about all worldly wisdom is that natural, self-confident presumption of what is right that finds its value in status, power, and acceptance. So you look to wisdom to gain self-confidence, to puff yourself up, and in the process of everyone doing this, everyone trying to gain status and power and acceptance, you divide. You divide into camps and groups and schools of thought. Worldly wisdom is self-centered. The wisdom of the Greeks was extremely self-centered. Their pursuit was to figure out what it was that made man so great and how they could exclude the spiritual from their lives. Worldly wisdom is self-centered, and that's why it can't discover God. As Paul says, the wise man of this world has no concern for God's ways, has no concern that God's ways are promoted, nor that the gospel of Jesus Christ is advanced, because the wisdom is turned inward to the self. The wise man of this world has one goal, and that's to be right. Isn't that the approach of so many leaders and gurus Wise people today, let me convince you that I am right, and then you will esteem me, and together we'll be great. I have an idea. If I can sell it to you and get lots of people on my side, then all together we'll be great, because we'll be better than everyone else who doesn't know what we know. Worldly wisdom finds its value, then, in in status, in power, in acceptance. It needs that. It feeds on that. For its existence. It's devoid of humility. The wise man, the scholar, the philosopher seek influence, notoriety, and prestige for themselves in their work. They must, lest they perish. On the eyes of God, this self-centered, boastful wisdom is not wisdom at all. And the feeling is mutual. In the wisdom of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that message of the cross that Paul gave his life to proclaiming, it just doesn't measure up in the wisdom of the world. The message of the cross is not self-centered at all. In fact, the message of the cross tells you it's not about you. It's not about you. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't self-centered, it's God-centered. And only when it's God-centered do we find that it's meaningful, upbuilding, uplifting for us. It is God-centered. And the message of the cross doesn't find value in its own credibility. It doesn't need you or me or any of us to believe it. That's why the messenger of this gospel isn't primarily concerned that he convince his hearers. 
Yes, that's right. That's what Paul is saying here. He says that he didn't come in 2 verse 1 with eloquence or superior wisdom. His goal was not to trick his hearers into believing him or just to get people on his side. That wasn't his goal at all. It's not the job of the preacher to convince his hearers. Wait a minute, you're asking. Then what is the job of the preacher? How will they be convinced that this is true? Well, you will be convinced by the foolishness of what is preached. The Apostle Paul isn't focused on how he communicates. That's not what's important. He's focused on what he communicates. Now, how you communicate can have a bearing on what you communicate. If you hear a lifeless lecture that's supposed to be passed off as a sermon, that may communicate something to you about the message. But even in that, the message is what is most important. The message is what is crucial. And we haven't been treated to lifeless lectures here in Langley for the past 25 years, but neither have we heard the world's best orator. We haven't heard Martin Luther King Jr. or Winston Churchill or Demosthenes, the great orator of Athens. But that's okay. Because what is important is actually not the messenger, nor the effectiveness of his style. What is important, what has been important, what always will be important, is the message and the effectiveness of that message. God was pleased through the foolishness, verse 21, of what was preached to save those who believe. The goal of the proclaimer of the gospel is to lay the message before you so that you can understand. He has to have the message so that you can understand it. And when you understand it, then the challenge is put on you. Will you believe it? Now you've heard. Now you understand the message of the cross, the foolishness of Jesus Christ. Will you believe it? That's simply what is happening. This is the message of the cross that is revealed throughout the entirety of Scripture and applied to the entirety of life. That's the message that the, that the preacher gives. He gives it to you that you might understand. And the challenge is put to you. Will you believe it? And so the emphasis must be on the message Jews look for miraculous signs. The Gospel of John is a book that's full of the signs that Jesus did. And what effect did it have for the Jewish people? They rejected it. Because it wasn't the signs that they wanted. Miraculous signs do not save. They reject it. They would not pin their faith on the message of the cross. Greeks look for wisdom. They want something that's going to bolster their self-importance, that's going to affirm their desires, that's going to give them credibility and power and status. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Christ crucified. You start to see how, in the wisdom of this world, this can be called foolishness. The message that the Messiah of God, the Savior of the world, died on a cross 
That's the wisdom of God. And that's the message that the good news proclaimed. And that's the message that Paul believed and therefore Paul speaks. And no wonder it's foolishness to the world. The message of the cross is not self-affirming. It doesn't bolster self-importance. It doesn't give a vision of glory that will impress the natural mind. The message of the cross turns the standards of the world on its on their heads. It's a message about sin. It's a message about depravity. It's a message about a shamed, persecuted, and rejected Savior, a Messiah who hung seemingly powerless upon a cross, condemned by Gentile and Jew alike. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Christ crucified. And it's foolishness. Do you want to pin your belief on that message? Is that the object of your faith? Are you going to waste your life proclaiming that message? Are you going to waste your life believing that message? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, the message of the cross flies in the face of worldly wisdom. But when you understand and believe and embrace that message, then man's wisdom loses its luster. When you believe the message of the cross, when you understand it and you believe it, that it is accomplished for you, then you understand God's wisdom and you experience God's power. God's power to save. It's like growing up on a diet of chocolate-covered sugar bombs for cereal, a cereal for breakfast, and then one day you discover that whole wheat bread and peanut butter is actually a lot better for you. At one time, having bread, whole wheat or multigrain bread with peanut butter was the last thing you wanted when you woke up in the morning. But after understanding why that's healthy and why that's much better for you in the long run, then the very thought of waking up in the morning and eating chocolate-covered sugar bomb cereal for breakfast is disgusting. It revolts you. That's what it's like when we understand the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of man loses its luster. And God has ordained that that would be the way things are. In Jesus Christ, God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And at the same time, he's confounded the wisdom of the world so that it cannot understand. It will not understand the message of the cross. The world through its wisdom cannot know him. The gospel is antithetical to worldly wisdom. But to those who cast off worldly wisdom and believe that that crucifixion of the Messiah, of that Jewish rabbi, is effective for their salvation. When you believe that, then in him, you see the wisdom and the power of God. And you see this illustrated in the people whom God has called to serve that crucified Messiah. In verse 26, Paul moves to illustrate his point about the power of God looking like weakness to worldly wisdom. And his illustration is a rather effective one. He says to the Corinthians, you are the illustration 
That God has turned the ways of this world on his head. That God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He says to the Corinthians, you illustrate the very point I'm making about the message of the cross. Look at yourselves. And the same applies to us today. Look at yourselves. Think of what you were when you were called. You weren't wise by worldly standards. You weren't influential. And you weren't noble. You weren't much. You were a bunch of unwise, inconsequential, unimportant people. And if you continue in our text beyond uh, to verse 27 and beyond, then you see that Paul even becomes less complimentary about these Corinthians. You were fools. You were weak. You were lowly. You were despised. You were nothing. Can we agree with this assessment? Despised, lowly, weak, foolish, nothing. You take a good look at where you came from and what you were, Paul says. You realize that you you really weren't much. You might have been puffed up by the wisdom of the world, but when you saw the wisdom and power of God displayed in Jesus Christ on the cross, then you realize that you you really weren't much at all. And that's the very point. Praise God that you were not much. Praise God that you realize that what you thought you were was just a mirage. It was foolishness. Because it's not about you, it's about God. And when you're puffed up in the wisdom of the world, you can't see that. But when you're brought low to realize that you are lowly and weak and despised, then you can see the wisdom and power of God displayed in the work of Jesus Christ, His Son. And God in Christ pursues this agenda of calling to himself those who by the standards of this world are not much, are disposable, are inconsequential. He does this to confound the wisdom of the world and to even, he says, destroy those who are self-confident and who boast in themselves. The message of the cross seeks to take the glory off of man and put the glory onto God and onto his astounding grace and love in Jesus Christ, his son. This is the message that the preacher must preach, that the hearer must believe. The astounding grace and love of God revealed in the death of his son for our sins. And so the believer understands that it's not because of their own great mind or character that they came to him. Nor was it because of some watertight apologetic argument. Nor was it because of that powerful preacher, that really caring pastor, that truly loving friend, that patient high school teacher, or whomever it was, that they are in Christ now. No. God is the author of salvation. And God will receive all the credit and all the glory. Whatever we do to help others is only secondary. We can plant with Paul. We can water with Apollos. But God gives the growth. This work of salvation, confounding the wisdom of the world, bringing near those whom he calls to understand the wisdom of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ is and only is the work of the almighty and everlasting God. 
And we always need to understand this truth of the gospel, that it is God's work so that he receives all the glory. Remember that as you reach out to your neighbors in love. This is God's work. The preacher, most of all, needs to understand that. And nearly 40 years ago, a young man climbed the pulpit in Coldale, Alberta, to preach this very message, this very text that's before us this morning. He desired to proclaim the message of the cross. Undoubtedly, he was also understanding his own important, yet not that important, place in being a preacher of the message of Jesus Christ. It's a special privilege to be a proclaimer of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message which is the very power of God, that power that created the world, all packaged in the message of, of the cross of Jesus Christ. And for nearly 40 years and 25 years here in Langley, God has used our pastor Vischer to faithfully proclaim that message. He didn't use it as an opportunity to boast in himself. He didn't place that burden of conversion upon himself. He did not urge you to think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Yes, he is a man with sin and weakness. But by God's grace, he was faithful in proclaiming God's grace. And it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Because God has united you to His Son, now you are wise. Wise with the wisdom from God. Wise with the wisdom that comes from the tree of life. Wise with the wisdom that grants and sustains eternal life. Now you understand, through that message proclaimed, the wisdom of God. God's wisdom turns the world on its head. The cross of Jesus Christ teaches us a whole new set of priorities. Jesus Christ is for us a whole new set of priorities. We don't look for wisdom by human standards, but we find righteousness in him and we value that. We don't seek to be influential in the world. We seek to be holy through Jesus Christ. We are not born into privilege, but we are redeemed to become children of God through Jesus Christ. So he is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And at the very core of all of these gifts is the cross of Christ. The message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for sin, defeated death, and has brought you near, restored you to his Father. So what should you say after 40 years of foolishness? What should be your boast after 65 years of living in this foolishness? What does Annalise have to look forward to in a life of foolishness? What do you do after believing this for 2 or 20 or 12 years? Years of believing the foolishness the message of the cross. What do you say? You say, look at what God has done. Look at how God has worked. Belief in Jesus Christ crucified. Let him who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.